I said, listen, my job as a hospice chaplain is to help people meet their spiritual needs, whatever they are. It's not to help me meet my needs, and it's definitely not to help you meet your needs. I said, listen, Martha, listen. Unless a patient says to me, I have a spiritual need to be on television, this is never going to happen. And nobody is ever going to say, I have a spiritual need to be on TV. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating and inspiring guests who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, author, and fellow Zestful Ager. And if you like the podcast, you'll love my companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. And it comes with a 30-page companion manual. It's a blueprint for aging well. Because what good is living longer if we're not also healthy and happy? Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. Well, I've got my little Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me, and I've got a cup of coffee in my hand, so let's begin. Today we have Carrie Egan, who is a former hospice chaplain, a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School, and the author of On Living and Fumbling, A Journey of Love, Adventure, and Renewal on the Camino de Santiago. Her work has been featured on PBS and CNN, and her essays have appeared in Parents, American Baby, Reader's Digest, and CNN.com, where they've been read for more than two million times. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you for having me. So you have a bit of exciting news. I understand that Pope Francis just published a book called Sharing the Wisdom of Time, and one of your essays is in this book. Yes. Yes. So it was just published yesterday, actually. Uh, uh Um, And this story, the story of this family, this couple, was something I had hoped would be an on living. And, uh, and it just, it didn't fit, right? It didn't, it, my editor, I wrote it up and my editor said, listen, structurally and thematically, it just, it doesn't fit in the book. And I was so disappointed because, um, well, I should back up and explain what the story is. So many years ago, got a phone call in the morning from a, a producer for PBS Religion and Ethics News Weekly, and she said, I am so curious about hospice chaplaincy, and I I read something you wrote, and I'm just not even sure if we've never covered hospice chaplaincy, and I'm wondering if there's a story there, and could I ask you a few questions? And I said, sure. I just kind of basically told her what hospice chaplains do and what are the role and scope of our work. And, and she said, this is just, this is marvelous. This is fascinating, really fascinating. And um, here's what I want to do. I'm going to come up there with a film crew and I'm going to follow you around for a day and film you with your patients. And I said, wait, 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 wait. No. No, you are not going to do that. This is a cooking show. And she goes, why not? And I said, why not? I can think of 10 reasons off the top of my head. And she goes, well, what are they? I said, number one, HIPAA. 
And she goes, mm-hmm. people can sign releases. I said, number two, my boss will never go for that. She goes, you haven't even asked your boss. And we go through the whole list. And she's got an answer for everything. I've never mm-hmm. met anyone like it. She's just so tenacious. And finally, I said, I don't have any patients who want to be on TV. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, how do you know? You haven't <laughs> asked them. And I said, oh, Martha, see, that's just it. I never will ask them. Oh. And she goes, why not? I said, listen, my job as a hospice chaplain is to help people meet their spiritual needs, whatever they are. It's not to help me meet my needs, and it's definitely not to help you meet your needs. Oh, I said, wow. if the patient doesn't have a spiritual need to be on TV, I'm not even going to ask them. And she said, well, maybe they'd want to be. How do you know? And I said, listen, you can't ask that kind of a question, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not going in there as their friend. I'm not Carrie Egan. I'm the hospice chaplain, right? There's a particular role and they, they're, there's such an imbalance of power yes, between, that's right. you know, between the chaplain and the patient, the patient who's dying. And for some people, not all people, but they look at me, whether or not they realize they're doing this or not, the conversations they have with me, the way they look at me is the way they're looking at God. Mm-hmm. and the conversations they're having with God. I see. I mean, somehow you are closer to God in their mind. Yeah, I mean, there's a you little a bit of direct trans- conversation. Right. There's a little transference yeah. going on. That's how yeah. it works, right? That's, that's the whole point of it, right? That's why it works. That's why a stranger you've never met before can come into your room as the hospice chaplain and you can talk to them and, and, have some, and have some growth, have some sense of reconciliation, have some sense of, of movement, right? It's not, it's not because of me. Um, it's because it's I'm what a you represent. Chaplain, yes. Right, right. I said, so I can never even ask them because they might feel like, oh, I guess I should say yes, even if I don't want to. I said, listen, Martha, listen. Unless a patient says to me, I have a spiritual need to be on television, this is never going to happen. And nobody is ever going to say, I have a spiritual need to be on TV (laughs) before I die. That's just not how it works. And she said, well, what's your boss's name and and phone number? I'll start there. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So I go into the office, right? I go into the office that day. And um, my boss, Sandy, says, oh, I talked to your friend Martha this morning. And I said, Sandy, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to get her off the phone. And she laughed. And she goes, no, no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I, I can handle that. That's fine. She goes, but listen, you have a new admission this morning. And um, he really wants to see the chaplain. It gets better. You, he really wants to see the chaplain. He says it's a spiritual emergency. I said, a spiritual emergency? Now, that, that might happen in the hospital. You know, like in the emergency room, someone mm-hmm. has died. Someone has just gotten a a terrible diagnosis. But in hospice, you don't tend to have spiritual emergencies like that. The emergency's already passed. Yeah. You know, like, you know your prognosis, you know your diagnosis. That doesn't tend to be what we're doing in hospice chaplaincy so much as in the hospital. So I go out. I go out to see this wonderful patient. His name is Jim. and, uh, And he says, listen, I have always had a very close relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I know what it feels like when the Holy Spirit has a job for me to do. And the Holy Spirit has a job. And um, I have a message. I have a message I have to get out to people. And I don't know, I don't know what to do about it because I can't even get out of my chair. How am I supposed to get a message out to thousands of people from my recliner? How can I do that? And I said, 
Oh, God. Do you want to be on TV? And <laughs> <laughs> he goes, yes, yes, I do want to be on TV. You can do that? And I said, I can do it this morning. <laughs> Couldn't do it yesterday. <laughs> I can do it today. Yeah, he had a spiritual need to be on TV. So, oh my gosh, you know, a month or so, maybe, yeah, probably a month, six weeks goes by and we get everything set up and TV film crew shows up at his house and I ring the doorbell and uh, his wife, Elaine, answers the door and she says, oh my gosh, didn't you get my text messages? And I said, no, what happened? And she goes, he had an episode. He had an episode this morning and... He can't, he can't go on. He was dying of uh, liver cancer. And when you're dying of liver disease, you can have these episodes where the ammonia gets too high and you just become very delirious and very weak. Um, They're exhausting. It takes hours or days to recover from it. I said, okay, then we won't do it. And meanwhile, Martha and her like five person film crew is behind me. And they're like, what? I said, no, no, we just, we can't, he's sick. But then we hear his voice from inside and he's going, let them in let them in so we go in and we film it and he he can't even lift his head right he's so weak he can't get his chin off his chest um he's covered in blankets he can't regulate his temperatures he's covered in six or seven blankets and he is barely able to talk and so i'm really worried now because i know there's a message from the holy spirit Mm. and even though we've been talking a lot you know once a week once every two weeks I don't actually know what the message is, right? I figure he's going to tell the message when the time is right. Mm-hmm. And so we're doing this visit, and it was, it was actually probably a pretty terrible pastoral care visit. I was, I was breaking every rule in the book, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm asking leading questions. I'm, you know, determining the direction of the conversation. I'm, <laughs> because I'm trying to figure out, like, oh. what was the message? I hope he can get it out, you know? Right. And so the visit ends, and... I'm not really sure how it went. Did he really get his message out, right? Because I'm invested in this now too. So I go back the next day and he's feeling much better, but you know, it's the next day. And I said, how did it go yesterday? What did you think? And he goes, oh, it was great. It was great. I'm so happy we did that. I said, good. So you're pleased. He goes, oh yeah, it was exactly what I needed to do. I said, good. So um, you got the message out. And he's like, oh yeah, definitely got the message out. I said, good, good. What was the message? <laughs> and he says, oh, the message was you. You and Patty and Erica and the nurses and, and my wife, Elaine, my wife. The message was you, right? The message is that there are people in this world who will take care of you when you're sick, even if you can't help them, that, that there's enough love in the world, that there are strangers who will mm-hmm. come to your house and take care of you when you're dying. Because that, that was it. Just that, that, that there's more love than sickness and that, that the love is stronger. The love is always stronger than the sickness and the death. That's it. That was the message. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and then he died. He died two weeks later. He died before the show aired. And he was fine with that. He was very much at peace. What was that like for you? It was great. I mean, it was exhausting, right? I mean, I feel like after that day, I probably slept for like two days straight. But, um, you know, sometimes as a hospice, no one's ever asked me that question before. Sometimes as a hospice chaplain, you don't know if you've done anything. 
right? You don't always get that. You sure. don't. You don't always get the satisfaction of knowing that your work did anything. Mm-hmm. You don't. Mm-hmm. You, you don't always get that. Um, so to get it that clearly, uh, that was a real gift. So the message got out and, and I tried to, and I had clearly permission to say this. He had the message. I, I wrote it up for the book and it just, it didn't fit in on living because on living really is about how people make meaning of the traumas they've experienced in life. Mm-hmm. And that's, this story didn't really fit that. It wasn't thematically quite right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I felt, I felt really proud of the TV show we did, but then disappointed that, it, it didn't make it into the book. It, and and, it, and it, my editor was right. It didn't belong there. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years go by. On Living comes out. I get a Facebook message. Because now, you know, I have this public Facebook page. Mm-hmm. I get a message on my public Facebook page from Elaine. Mm-hmm. And it just said something like, we still remember you. And, you know, you were an important part of our life. Thank you. Or something like that. So, I, of course, I, I emailed right back. And I said... I'm so happy to see your name and I hope you're well and I think about you sometimes and and if you'd like to be in touch I would love to be in touch you know but I don't want to intrude if you if you want to be in touch mm-hmm. please you know let me know I would I would love I would love to but I also know that sometimes that's not that not what people want or need and she texted back right away and she said no I'd love to hear how you are and what you're doing and, and so we talked on the phone we talked on the phone and she sounded exactly the same and we're laughing, we're talking, and she's saying, I can't believe Jim let those people in. And it was on TV, you know, did this filming mm-hmm. two weeks before he died. He, she said, I don't know what got into him that morning. He he wanted to do that TV show so bad. I don't know what got into him. And I said, well, he had to get the message out. And she said, what message? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> And I said, oh boy, I said, he had a, he had a message to get out from the Holy Spirit. And she said, now she knew he was, she was the one who told me that he was like a real, real fan of the Holy Spirit. You know, he, she would tell these funny stories about his, his very close relationship with the Holy Spirit. So she wasn't surprised. Mm -hmm. And she said, that doesn't surprise me. That doesn't surprise me at all because of the life he led and the man he was. And that doesn't surprise me. But he he would he had one last job from the Holy Spirit. She said, "But what was the message?" Mm-hmm. And then I got to say, "The message was you. The message was you, Elaine. The message was you taking care of him. What that looks like to be so sick and dying, and that that your love didn't waver. Right? That the love survived. That you know the message was that the love was stronger than death. And um, she got real quiet." And she said, you know, he talked to you a lot at the end. He had a lot to get off his chest, and I don't begrudge that time he spent talking to you. She said, but you know, he talked to you so much at the end, Carrie, and he didn't talk to me, and I wish he had. I wish he had told me that the love was stronger than the death, Mm -hmm. because I didn't know that. For a long time, I didn't know that. And I wish, I wish he had told me. And I'm so glad you told me now. Okay, and I'm not exaggerating. I'm not kidding. The next day, maybe at max two days later, I get an email. I get an email. And the email says, 
I'm an editor at Loyola Press, and I'm working, I'm the editor on the new book for the Pope. And the Pope is working on a book where he... <laughs> mm. He's sharing the stories of elders, of the things they've learned in life that they wish they could share with other people. And we wanted to know if you might know someone who has a story they want to share. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I said, maybe. maybe. <laughs> and Jim and Elaine were very devout Catholics. And I, I called her and I said, listen, you have, feel free to say no. I said, but... There's this opportunity. Oh, my goodness. Do you want to tell your story? And she said, oh, my gosh, yes, of course I do. Yes, I want to tell our story, me to and the, Jim. And for the for Pope's the Pope's book? book. Oh, my gosh. And so I had been so disappointed because, you know, I thought, oh, I, you know, I didn't get it into my book. And and little did I know, right, that, mm. you know, in, in, in theology, in Christian theology, there's this idea of kairos versus chronos. And so chronos is chronological time. Chronos is human time, time mm -hmm. as we as humans experience it. And then there's kairos, which is time as God experiences time, which is to say there is no time and that there is perfection of time, right? It's, it, sometimes people translate it as the fullness of time, right? In the fullness of time, we will understand this. It's, mm -hmm. it's all of time, it's, but it's God's time, that God under, has a different understanding, a different view of existence, right, than humans can, because God is outside of time itself. I see. So that there's this fullness of time in Kairos, and that it's the idea that things happen when they're meant to happen, not when we want them to happen. Okay. And I just felt like, what an example of Kairos that was, right? Mm -hmm. That if I had put Jim's story into On Living, it wouldn't have been the full story. Right. Right, because I hadn't been in touch with Elaine. But there had to be two parts to that message, right? There was the Jim's message, which is that love is stronger than death. And there's Elaine's message, which is that that's true, yes, but we need to remind each other of that. Like we need to remind each other of that over and over again. You can't simply say, well, that's true and we should all just be comfortable and rest in that mm -hmm. truth. Mm -hmm. We need, in this human existence, we need, each, we need to remind each other. We need to remind each other that, that love is stronger than trauma and love is stronger than sickness and love is stronger than death. Mm -hmm. You know? So was that experience transformative for you in terms of the way you understand life? It's been very transformative in that it has, I'm an impatient person. This idea of Kairos versus Kronos, it's hard mm. for me, mm -hmm. right? I struggle with that because I want to be in control of time, mm -hmm. right? I want to be in control of when things happen and how things happen, because that makes me feel good to feel like I'm in control. That's right. <laughs> and I'm not. None of us are in control of a lot of things. We're in control of some things. I don't want to say we should all just throw up our hands and just ah, just give up and sit on the couch. That's not what I'm saying. But, but it's important to remember we're not in control of everything. That's the hardest thing sometimes for me to get my head around is that I, I'm living in chronos, right? I'm living in chronological time because I'm a human being. And that there is a fullness of time. That I, I don't understand because I, I'm, I'm not able to see the totality and that I have to trust, I have to trust in that fullness of time. It's a hard thing to do. Is this related <laughs> really to the idea of surrender? Uh, well, okay. So surrender, that word can mean lots of different things theologically. Okay. 
So what do you mean by surrender? Well, the idea that we're not in control and how we wish we were, but sort of the recognizing that for the really big things, I'm not in control. And to be able to let that go and give that up and have some faith that it's going to evolve. I mean, I think it that can be part of this idea of Kairos and Kronos, but I think that I, this idea of Kairos and Kronos is bigger than that. Mm-hmm. I think it's bigger than just a sense of surrender. Um, I think a better word than surrender would be faith for me, mm-hmm. right? To have mm-hmm. faith. And it's, a, you know, sometimes you look at the world and it's a hard thing to wrap your head around. But I, you know, I, I think of Martin Luther King always, you know, he said that he believed that the arc of the universe always moved towards justice. But when you're living a lifetime of 90 years, 80 years, 60 years, 30 years, whatever your lifetime is, Mm -hmm. you might not see that big arc, you know, because we're in this tiny piece of it. So, so I always, I always hesitate, you know, sometimes I think it's a, a cop out to say to people and I never, I never... I never want to be a theological cop-out. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I think it's a cop-out to say to people, well, you know, this is God's plan. I think if it's worse than a cop-out, I think it can actually be very cruel. I think it'd be very cruel to mm-hmm. say to someone who has lost a child, mm-hmm. this is God's plan. Mm-hmm. I think that's, quite frankly, one of the cruelest things you can say. Because it's dismissing their grief. It's telling them they shouldn't be grieving. It's making right. God, it's making God a monster who goes around taking mother's children. Uh-huh. Um, so I hesitate to say, I don't think I like that word surrender because I think we do have free will and I think we do have agency and I think we can make the world a better, I think we call to make the world a better place, right? I think we are, we have a small amount of time in this created world. I don't know what comes after. I have ideas, but do I know? Not really. I don't know. I have belief. I have faith. I don't, I don't know what came before I was on this world, except through history books. I don't know what happens to me after, but I do know that I have this short time, and really it's a short time in the history of human existence, and a, a, I mean, it's nothing in the history of the existence of the universe. I mean, 80 years is nothing, but I have this short time in which I get to not only be part of this created world, but to create something in it. Mm-hmm. So I think if we focus too much on, oh, surrender, I think we're throwing away what's most remarkable about human life, which is we have the ability to create something. Mm-hmm. And we have the agency to create something good or something bad. So on the one hand, there is this, this kairos, there is this fullness of time, there is you know, millions and millions and millions of years that we can't, you know, billions of years that we can't comprehend. But we also have chronos. So it's this real tension. So I don't want to yes. say, I don't want to say, mm-hmm. oh, it's about surrender. It's, it's not just about surrender. Sometimes, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's about saying, you know, I don't understand this and I need to be patient. You know, I waited patiently for the Lord, right? I don't think that means God was late to the appointment, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it means I, I waited patiently because I don't know the fullness of time. At the same time, I don't have to surrender, right? I do have this opportunity to, I mean, that's what I learned from my patients, right? When at the end of life, when they're looking Mm -hmm. back on their lives, that's what they talked about. They talked about 
being in creation. They talked about being in relationship with other people. They mm -hmm. talked about mm -hmm. the families they created. They talked about the work they created. They talked mm -hmm. about, you know, that's like Jim, they talked about the message they created. They very much talked about being in creation and they talked about what it means to leave, what it means to leave. Because we're all going to leave someday. That's right. It doesn't what mean, does it mean? What What did you hear about what it means to leave? You know, some people were really ready and some people were not ready at all. Some people who were 35 were ready and some people who were 100 did not want to go. I see. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with age. And I don't even know if you can say it has anything to do with, well, you know, they made peace of their lives. I don't even know if it has any correlation with that. I think some people, some people are afraid, but not as many as you'd think. Okay. Not as many as you'd think. And that was very reassuring. It's very reassuring to see that a lot of people on hospice, they're okay. Like they've really thought about this and they don't know exactly what's going to happen either. You know, it's like the first time you have a child, mm -hmm. you know, the first time you go through birth, like you can read all about it, but you don't really know what it's going to be like. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, they, so that surprised you uh, somewhat that that there were people who were ready and were not afraid. At first it did. Not only ready and not afraid, but sometimes like looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. Right. There's there are people like they're kind of like, let's get on with this. Like, let's okay. do this. I'm ready. I want to They'll say I want to know what comes next. Aha. Uh -huh. I've done. I've done everything I want or can do in this world. Like, I'm curious. I want to see what comes next. Mm -hmm. That was shocking to me that sometimes people are not just ready. They're like looking forward. Right. They're looking forward. The That's, next phase. Yeah, the next step. Because right now as a 45-year-old, I'm not looking forward. I'm not looking forward to dying. I, mm -hmm. But that's very, um, it's kind of awesome. <laughs> it's kind of awesome to realize, wow, you can look forward to this. There are people who look, not that they're suicidal. That's mm -hmm. not at all what I'm saying. Right. But they're like really curious. They want to know what happens. They're looking forward. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. They want to see their, they want to see their wife or husband. They want to uh -huh. see their kids. They want to, they want to meet God. If God is real, they want to, they want to know what comes next. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are not afraid. There are some people who are, but there's a lot of people who aren't. It seems to me like you've had experiences in your life that, it might even be trivializing to say we're deeply, deeply profound and enriching. And um, I wanted to talk to you about the walk. The Camino de Santiago. Yes. Yeah. Will you talk a little bit about what led you to decide to do that, what it was like for you? Just give us, give us some sense of that. Yeah. So... Um... My father died of juvenile diabetes. Um, he had it my entire life, and he was very sick my entire life. Now, not every day, not every month, but he was chronically ill with very poorly controlled diabetes. And so he was in and out of hospitals. It, it, it led for a very unsettled childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and my parents did the best they could, which is to say they did a phenomenal job. And I realize now as a mother, looking back on my mother and father, 
they did a phenomenal job with an incredibly difficult hand that was dealt to them. Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful for how they raised us. It was not perfect, right? No one's childhood is perfect. That's another thing you learn in hospice. (laughs) (laughs) No one had a perfect childhood, Mm. but they, they did the best they could. That being said, it left its scars, right? It left its scars. Mm -hmm. And so my dad died finally when I was at my first year of divinity school. I had just turned 25. And there was a certain shock to it, right? Because when your dad's been sick your whole life, in and out of hospitals, and you've been told this could be it, this could Mm -hmm. be the end, over Mm -hmm. and over again, and it's never the end. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. exactly. And then all of a sudden he did die. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. Like just bamboozled by this because people will say you know oh you must have been prepared not at all Mm -hmm. not in any way not in any way was I prepared um and I had a very complicated grief I had a very complicated grief because I had complicated feelings towards him because he had been sick my whole life so when he died I um a professor had given me a book and asked me to write a, a book report on it on um pilgrimage. Victor and I was at Harvard Divinity School at the time. It was Victor and Edith Turner's book on pilgrimage. And I just became, you know, when people are grieving, it's such a strange experience, right? You think you're going crazy. You're not going crazy, mm-hmm. but you think you're going crazy. You feel like you're disintegrating. And that's not just me, right? That's a common, that's common to the grief experience. This feeling like you're coming apart at the seams. And so I sort of hooked into this idea that I was going to do a pilgrimage. And a friend of mine across the street, I mentioned this, I think I want to do a pilgrimage. And she said, oh, I'm taking a Spanish class and we're learning about the Camino de Santiago. And I just Mm -hmm. decided, people say, why that one? And why? I don't really have a good reason. I just decided in the midst of sort of that strange, disintegrative feeling of grief, that Mm -hmm. this was what was going to keep me together, right? Mm -hmm. This was how I was going to hold myself together. I was going to do a pilgrimage. (laughs) And I bought these guidebooks. This is, you know, before the internet really was quite so helpful the way it is now. Right. I bought these guidebooks from England and they got shipped over and, and I would read them. And, and this was sort of how I held myself together in that year. So a year later, I go off, I fly to Spain. I'm going to do the Camino. Um, you were by yourself? No, I was with Karen? my boyfriend at the time, uh-huh. who's now my husband. And we started, uh, we flew into France and I was really struggling at the time. Uh, and we flew into France and we took the train down to a, a tiny little town called St. Jean. And we walked the first day, you walk over the Pyrenees. It's uh, 28, I can't remember if it's 28, it has to be 28 kilometer. No, 28 miles. I can't remember. It's a very long walk the Mm. first day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't make it, right? You're trying to walk to this monastery in, in Spain and there's really nothing in between the two. And then from there, you walk sort of almost straight west across northern Spain and you stop in these little towns along the way and it's an old road right so it's it's different from the Appalachian Trail or you know, the Pacific Crest Trail mm-hmm. because those are hiking trails and yes. those are those are trying to avoid towns right those are going through wilderness areas the Camino it literally means the road to St. James it's okay. it's a road it's an old medieval road so it connects mm-hmm. towns roads connect towns so you're going from town to town um and some parts of the road are 
at least 20 years ago. I, I don't know what it's like now. It's, it's gotten much more popular and much more popular in the meantime. Some parts of the road are the original Roman road right. that the medieval pilgrims used. I mean, you're, there are places where you're walking over these old Roman bridges, um, mm-hmm. or at least you were 20 years ago. I, from what I understand, it's much more heavily traveled now, but in 1998, it was not. Um, so you're walking over these old Roman roads, and Romans did not believe in switchbacks. Like, <laughs> if there's oh. a hill... <laughs> The road straight up up the hill. (laughs) They were so brilliant, right? And yet they didn't, that never occurred to them (laughs) to go back and forth. To put in a little zigzag. (laughs) So, you know, there are parts of it, the old Roman road. And then there are parts where you're literally walking like in the shoulder of, you know, like an interstate of a highway. Oh my goodness. Because it's a road. It's, It's an old road. And so you go from town to town and, um, Probably one of the most wonderful parts of the Camino are the people who live in the towns because they'll, they'll they call, you know, some of them, they call themselves the friends of the Camino. Mm-hmm. And um, if you talk to some of them, at least again, 20 years ago, they would tell you, this is my vocation is to take care of pilgrims. You know, I was uh... born, I was born in this tiny little town in Northern Spain that the Camino goes through. And this is why my vocation is to to care for pilgrims. It's really, it's really wonderful. You meet people from all over the world. People from all over the world go and you just, you just walk, you know, you wake up in the morning and you put on your boots and they have in different towns, they have little, um, they call them refugios and they're sometimes they're run by churches. Sometimes they're run by the, the town, municipal refugios or albergues. Uh, and sometimes they're actually run by individual families. We'll just open up a little hostel and you stay in the hostel mm-hmm. and you walk. <laughs> and that doesn't sound terribly interesting, but it's, it is. And every person I've known, and this is, I can say this, you know, I, I don't, I try not to talk in absolutes, especially when it comes to people who are dying. But I can say this in an absolute 100% of the people I've ever met who did the Camino feel absolutely transformed by the experience in Uh some way. And they all feel transformed in different ways, right? Nobody has the same transformative experience, but I've never met anybody who did not feel fundamentally changed by it. What's your theory about that? Well, I'd say it's not even just my theory. You know, there's a lot of people who talk about pilgrimage like why why mm-hmm. is pilgrimage found in every major religious tradition mm-hmm. I mean think about that that's wild every major religious tradition has some history some tradition of pilgrimage of going from one place to another that is holy and so anthropologists and and historians of religion who study this have lots of theories about why this happens there is Victor and Edith Turner talk about communitas communitas is this this idea that when you're on pilgrimage, all of the structures of your social life are gone, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of those structures of who you are and who you're expected to be don't really exist anymore, right? Because what do you do? You're just walking from mm-hmm. town to town. And so this, this frees you up to, be, to become friends with and to meet and to know people you would not know in your everyday life. And to be alone with your thoughts. And to be alone with your thoughts. The communitas, though, the communitas is really about community. The communitas is really about being in community 
in a different way with people you would not normally be in community with. I see. Yeah, there's a theory of liminality. There's this theory that on pilgrimage, pilgrimage is a liminal experience. So liminal experiences are these experiences that once again, don't fit into society, mm-hmm. right? They don't fit into your own expectations of who you are and society's expectations of who you should be and who you are. You're in a liminal state. A liminal state is a state where you're between, right? You're between periods of your life. You're between social role expectations. You're between, you're liminal. You're, it sounds also you're in a liminal like experience. some of this sounds like there are not even words that can quite express the experience as you're describing yeah. it. I mean, that, that of course, right? I mean, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem with spiritual, ex- not a problem. That's just the reality mm-hmm. right, of spiritual experiences. There's this wonderful book that I read so many years ago. It was called The Mystical Languages of Unsaying. And it was about how mystics, right, medieval mystics who would have these religious experiences, you know, Julian of Norwich and and Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. And these mystics would write poetry to try to explain what happened to them. And then they would have to unsay what they just said. So it's these mystical languages of unsaying, right? You try to say something is ineffable, right? This experience is, it's transcendent, Mm -hmm. it's ineffable. And in the very fact that I just called it transcendent and ineffable, I tried to say something about it. I tried to mm-hmm. make it not transcend experience, mm-hmm. right? So that's the difficulty. That's always mm-hmm. the difficulty of talking that about, paradox. you know, of, of these experiences that, and this is something I learned in hospice. I don't think these mystical experiences are unusual. I don't think they're rare. I think most people have them. I think the vast majority of people have them. Mm-hmm. But because they have no language to talk about them, they don't. Wow. Right? That's the problem. That's the mystical languages of unsaying. Mm -hmm. How do you talk about something that is beyond words? And people will say, you know, I had this, I had this experience. I was, you know, floating on my back in the ocean. And all of a sudden, God was with me. And I was in God. And I was of God. And the ocean turned into God. And I've never told anybody that because they'll think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what to do with this experience, right? They had this experience when they were 32 years old, and now they're 87, you know? Mm. And they still remember that experience. Mm. That's so fascinating. And, and you hear that all the time. And they'll say, you know, they'll say, you're the chaplain. What did that mean? What did that experience mean? And of course, they know what it means. They and they and God need to work out together what it means. Mm-hmm. I'm simply there as I'm there as someone who can, you know, who could listen and who can maybe ask a couple of helpful questions. Maybe I can reframe something. Maybe I can remind them of, of what their religious tradition says. But ultimately, those experiences, right, that you can have on pilgrimage, but sometimes you have them in your kitchen. Right. Mm -hmm. People will tell you that like out of the blue. I just had this experience of of wonder and awe and beauty and of my own smallness and of my own not smallness because I'm part of this larger thing. Or they'll say, I heard a voice. I was mowing the lawn 
And I heard a voice and the voice mm-hmm. told me to call my nephew. And I called him and, you know, and it turned out he was in a very bad place and nobody knew. You know, I had this experience where I, I heard a voice and the voice told me, don't go, don't go to your, you know, your meeting tonight. And I, to this day, I don't know why. And I, I didn't go and I'm glad I didn't. I just knew, I just knew that I shouldn't go. You know, people mm-hmm. have these experiences that yes. are very hard to talk about. Sometimes they're afraid to talk about them because they're afraid people will think they're crazy. But I think, I think they're very common. I think that being on pilgrimage creates a set of conditions where these experiences perhaps are more likely to happen because you're spending hours and hours alone with your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Most people fall into a very meditative trance not a trance, that's not the right word, a meditative state. Yes. Because you're walking in the, in the very hot weather and you're just walking and you start meditating without knowing you're doing it. You have this sense of communitas. You have this sense of connection and relation. It's very hard to explain it it's, if, yeah. if you haven't experienced it. It's not just like feeling like, oh, we're friends, we're buddies. It's mm-hmm. communitas. It's this strange experience of feeling very connected to strangers and there's a whole I mean there's a sacredness of this walk of all the people over the ages who have done this before you a thousand years right people Mm -hmm. have been praying along this road Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's it's eight feet wide there's this eight foot wide road that people have been praying on for thousands of years and it's an interesting question you know does I don't know. Do your prayers somehow change the landscape? Uh Maybe. I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Maybe. What what an interesting question. Were you aware when things started shifting for you as you were walking? Could you observe yourself feel differently than when you started? No. I did not have that kind of self-awareness at that point. No. I mean, I was so deep in grief, but my grief at that point looked like anger, my grief at that point was very bottled up. And what the Camino did for me <laughs> is it allowed me, it allowed me to be angry. Anger is a stage of grief that frightens a lot of people, right? I was very frightened of being angry before that. Mm-hmm. Because when you have that, and I, I see this in hospice patients, right? When you have that kind of deep anger, and anger, I think sometimes anger gets a bad rap because sometimes anger is protest against injustice. Right. And it's there for a reason. It's there for a reason, right? Something has made you angry. And when we tell, and women especially, are told that we are not to be angry. So if you're not allowed to be angry, you're not allowed to recognize injustice. That's terrible. Because mm-hmm. if you don't recognize injustice, you can't, you can't address the injustice. Now, sometimes that injustice is structural. Sometimes in my case, in my dad's death, the injustice I felt was, it just seemed so horribly unfair that he was so sick. His whole adult life, you know, starting when he was a teenager, was one of sickness. And that there is something terribly unfair. It feels mm-hmm. terribly unjust, right? That, that, that suffering. He suffered. That I was angry at that suffering. I was angry at my own suffering. But if you can't even, if you're not even allowed to be angry, then you don't even know what you are. You can't have self-awareness, right? If you're not allowed to even acknowledge you have a certain mm-hmm. feeling. 
Mm-hmm. How can there be any self-awareness? And women, I think, struggle with that more than men. Absolutely. Men sometimes are not allowed to be sad. Mm-hmm. And, and I say aren't allowed. Okay, who's not allowing them? Well, they've been taught. They've been taught they're not allowed. They've been taught by their families. They've been taught by their friends. They've been taught by their religious beliefs. They've been taught by TV commercials. And they've been taught. Someone taught them that they weren't allowed to be sad, that they weren't allowed to be angry. Mm -hmm. Um, The Camino, for me, it was a time to learn how to be angry. I didn't cry after my dad died for months. I was trying very hard not to feel anything. And so the Camino, for me... No, I don't know that I had much self-awareness, quite frankly, on the Camino. I think it came later. What it, what it did for me is, it, listen, when you have no one else but yourself for hours, because quite frankly, Alex, my, my husband, it, it got to the point where we walked separately. You know, we, we did not walk next to each I other. Was, I was wondering about we, how that worked. One or the other of us was usually about a hundred feet either behind or in front of each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that, you see that a lot. That's actually pretty common. <laughs> you know, when you have to be with yourself at some point, you can't deny it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that to me was the gift of the Camino was being allowed to be angry at the way he suffered at what mm-hmm. felt like that injustice mm-hmm. that people are sick and people suffer and people die in this world. I think the self-awareness on the Camino came much later. It came actually in the experience of writing about being on the Camino. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where some of that self-awareness came from. That's where I realized how I changed. I was not aware at the time I was changing. Mm-hmm. It was only in, only in retrospect, only in writing about it did I see how I changed from that's beginning in, to end. That's interesting. So what's next for you, Carrie? You've had, I mean, I know this book just came out, the Sharing the Wisdom of Time. Well, that's just a little essay, right? That, that's, 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 that's just yeah, a little essay. Just in but, the Pope's book. Right. No, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> but what's next for you? What projects are you working on now? Well, I've, I've been doing a lot of public speaking, which um, was a very unexpected result of On Living being published. And I have really loved that. (laughs) I Mm. never expected it. And so it's funny, over the last two years, I've been doing a lot of public speaking. Mm -hmm. um, And I haven't really, I've been sort of struggling. I've been thinking, you know, is that really, is that really doing something? And it was, it was a friend just recently, actually, a new friend, when I was out in Illinois doing a speaking engagement, <laughs> and I was talking with another chaplain, right? The best thing about being a chaplain is hanging out with other chaplains because they're mm-hmm. just, they're so smart. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. so thoughtful and smart. And they make you feel smart. You know? mm-hmm. um, they make you feel so self-aware when in fact you're not really, or me, me I'm not all that <laughs> self-aware. I try really hard, but you know, mm-hmm. it's an ongoing daily battle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she said, cause I said, you know, is that really does that really work going around talking to people? And she kind of laughed and she goes, well, it's what ministers do every week, week after week, right? Mm-hmm. They stand up and they talk to people about, she said, you're just, you're just doing it in a different way. So that was very helpful to sort of reframe that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been doing a lot of public speaking. I also, after the book came out, a lot of people have contacted me and they said, do you do spiritual direction? I don't know if you're familiar with what spiritual direction is. I don't uh, think I am. Ah, okay. A lot of people aren't. So what you read about in On Living, my interactions 
with people, what you do as a chaplain is you are listening. That's the number one thing you do. You listen. Because we don't always live in a world where people will listen. Mm-hmm. And you help people figure out if they believe in God. Not everybody does. If, you, if that's a word you use, God, if you believe in a sense of sort of this transcendent other, who is that transcendent other in your life? And where does it show up? What is your relationship with this transcendent other? And how do you, how do you make meaning of the things that happened? It's not therapy. Therapy is about identifying a problem where you're not functioning well in your life. Right. And coming up with strategies for better functioning. Mm-hmm. That's not what a chaplain does. It's not what a spiritual director does, right? A chaplain and, and, and in spiritual direction, you are helping people look at where is God in my life? And who do I want to be? And how do I make meaning? What is this, the meaning, the spiritual meaning of these experiences of my life? So a lot of people had been contacting me after On Living came out and they said, are you doing spiritual direction? Are you doing spiritual direction? And at first I said no, because I'm, I'm doing publicity for the book and I'm doing all this public speaking. And, and I sort of came to the realization, though, that part of the reason I was saying no is that I was afraid to say yes. So now when people contact me and say, are you doing spiritual direction? I say, yes, I am. (laughs) And that's what I've been doing. And it's been really wonderful. It's been really wonderful. You've done a lot of different things. I can see how your work has evolved over the years. It has, yeah. Yeah. It's, It's been so lovely hearing about all of your work, Carrie, and your writing and your work with patients and your walking on the Camino de Santiago. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy hearing how you've engaged these questions of meaning. I think the most important thing, if I were, if I could say something to everybody who's listening right now, like look them right in the eye, <laughs> yes. what I would say is the work people do at the end of life is meaning making. It's looking at the experience of their lives and deciding mm-hmm. what did it mean. But you don't have to wait until you're dying to do that. Uh-huh. You know, so many people do because they're in the midst of their life and it's too crazy. They don't have time or they don't want to, or they don't think they have the spiritual bandwidth to take some time and think, what in God's name? How do I make sense of what's happening or has happened? And so they don't, but there's nothing stopping you. And I I think that's why I'm excited about working with people in spiritual direction, or sometimes people call it spiritual companionship, you know, to see that you don't have to wait until the very end mm-hmm. to do that work. You can do it in the middle of life. If, if people who are dying, who are physically weak and have this pressure of time, they know time is running out. If they can do this work, and it can be very difficult work, if they can do it, then we, we can do it too in the middle of life. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, um, You know what I said on the Camino, you know, when you don't have that self-awareness, I didn't know I was angry. When you don't have that self-awareness, it's hard to move forward. And that's right, life, that's what it is. It is a journey. Like the pilgrimage helps you see that, that you just, you got, you can't stop. You can't, you can want to stop and you can't, right? The refugio will kick you out. (laughs) You've got to keep moving forward. You have to move forward. And you don't have to do it in a sense of chaos. You can make meaning of it. Mm-hmm. All of us can. We can do it right now. You really can. 
Wow. That's what I would want people to know. Uh-huh. What did my what does my life mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a beautiful question. Um, where can people find you, Carrie, if they'd like to learn more about your work? Oh, well, I have a website. It's mm-hmm. carrieegan.com. There's not okay. much on there. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm uh, Okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not very good at that sort of stuff, you know, like okay. in technology. <laughs> so sure, you can sure. You there. Um, let's see. I have, oh, I have a Facebook page. Okay. I think it's Carrie Egan Writer on Facebook. And it's E-G-A-N. E-G-A-N. But I'll be honest, there's not much on there either. <laughs> Start there. I'll get okay. better at that. I have to get better at that. But at least they could they could look at your book on living. They could do that. And, okay. Okay. So they can contact you if they would like to work yes. with you or learn yeah. oh, more gosh, about yes. these questions. Yes. Oh gosh. Okay. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Yes, yes, it was delightful. And um, you asked good questions. Thank you. I'm really excited for you about sharing the wisdom of time. That just sounds like such an honor. Oh, well, it's like I said, I just love how that came together. That Uh uh, I just love the idea that if you have a message, right, if you've got a message from the Holy Spirit, you're going to want to be in the Pope Francis's book, not Carrie Mm -hmm. Egan's book, right? There's going to be a lot more people who read Pope Francis than Carrie Egan. Let's just be honest. (laughs) If you want a far reach, I think Jim got it. I think Jim Burgo got as big a reach as he could get. That's great. That is great. Yeah, he was a great guy. He was a great guy. I was honored to be able to do that really and truly yeah. happy just oh, happy to get to do that so thank you thank you so much for joining us on zestful aging if you like the podcast please share with some of your friends i love to hear from my listeners send me an email at nicolechristina.com and please consider becoming a patron of the show You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.